According to a McKinsey study, there are more women in entry-level retail jobs than in any other industry. However, as their careers in retail continue, only 30% of these women will make it to senior-level leadership positions, and of those, only 13% make it to the C-suite. This is the Women's Retail Collective podcast, where we pull together retail's most influential women to talk about their careers, how they made it to senior leadership and C-suite positions, and how they lead their organizations through a rapidly evolving retail industry. With us, we have Allison Hahn. Allison is the SVP of merchandising for makeup and fragrance at Sephora. Allison, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Anne, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I know you worked with Chris Walton, my business partner before, and he's given me the full rundown, but I'd love to hear kind of your background in your own words. Where did you grow up and kind of take me through to, let's start with your first career in retail. Okay. Well, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and I went to school on the East Coast, a, a fairly small university called Leo, uh, Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And I was not as, you know, I, I listened to a lot of your podcasts and other podcasts, and it amazes me how intentional and focused some people have been, even as a young kid, you know, like knew what they wanted to do. I was, I was not as intentional. So my over 30-year career in retail is something that I fell into. And my first job in 1986 in retail was going to what was at the time the last Bambergers training program before they converted into Macy's, New Jersey. Wow. And that while it was, I was at, at Macy's, New Jersey for seven years doing various different jobs, it became Macy's, New York. And so I ended up working out of Herald Square when I was an assistant buyer. And then I went back into the stores, but I, I fell into it because what Honestly, at the time, what drew me to uh, the training program was the incredible reputation that Bambergers slash Macy's had in training, which is something that I think is a, a little, we're missing a little bit in the, um, in the industry today, but that is what attracted me to going someplace that was considered the best. That was what really appealed to me. And the fact that right, wrong, or indifferent. I always liked product. I loved, you know, I was teased by my sisters, my three sisters. I had too many sweaters and they were all different sweaters and how I got dressed to go to school. And there was something about aesthetics and especially around what I wore, what I looked like, or my hair that was really important to me. Um, and so I just, I think I kind of had it in my blood. My dad, um, was in the shoe manufacturing business when I was growing oh, cool. up. So I remember going into his office and there were all these shoe samples. Mm. It was, but I loved like touching and feeling and looking and picking, you know, and asking my dad why this one or that one, and did this one sell or, or did that one sell? And I think I just was always curious about product as a, as a kid. Well, and it sounds like you, it was a big part of your life. I mean, growing up, if your dad was in shoe manufacturing, I imagine like just that, that interest in fashion and trend and, and yeah. that was kind of part of your, your upbringing, it sounds like. And I should say my grandfather also wasn't in, in the shoe business. Okay. So it is very much in my blood. I have some of my grandfather's old, old textbooks from, he went to University of Pennsylvania, uh, textbooks on merchandising. 
um, and selling and with his handwriting in it. And they're, they're oh still gosh. dear to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine that would be so yeah. cool to look at today. Just how things have, yeah. have you changed. You know, it's not so the same. The basic. Yeah. The basics aren't so different from yeah. you know, 1930, 30, you know, to now. Right. Basics. Right. Yeah. Well, so you, you spent some time at Macy's you mentioned, and then oh, yeah. after Macy's, I was there for seven years and Macy's went through a lot of transformation and transition at that time. Um, and based on the change of ownership, you know, there was just change in leadership. You kind of felt it even at the time I was at a little more of a junior level and I went to Saks Fifth Avenue. So I was okay. for seven years. So I went from kind of a, a um, broader scope of third-party brand management and all of that to Saks, which was also third-party, but higher end. Okay. I was there when the very illustrious and very well-respected duo of um, Philip Miller and Rosemary Bravo were there. And that was, a, you know, an incredible thing to see um, just how different, you know, luxury could be from kind of more a, an all-American, middle America um, way of doing business and realizing a little more, learning more about designer brands, what's important to them, relationships, things like that. And I was much an East Coast girl. I was in New York City. And I remember I got a call because Banana Republic was going to launch a catalog. Even though Banana Republic was based in San Francisco, the catalog portion was going to be based in New York. So I took an interview. And at the time, I'm not sure what they still do. It was a long time ago. This was 1997, I think. They flew you out to meet with a group of executives in San Francisco. And I met with like incredible people, Gene Jackson, uh, Gary Muto, and obviously the, the very well-known and beloved Mickey Drexler. And I was like, you guys, I love Banana Republic. At the time, it was a really um, burgeoning brand. Um, but I was like, I'm not. And they were like, you, sh you can't do the catalog. It's too small. We really want you to come to San Francisco. And I'm like, oh, guys. I'm not moving to San Francisco. I'm a East Coast girl. I, my sisters are here. My family is here. My grandparents are here. And Mickey, one of the things, if you know Mickey, that you know is, you know, you can't say no to Mickey when he really wants something. So, you know, sure. what I loved about that time was, A, he, you know, the organization did things to make me feel comfortable personally. So I could go on that journey, move for a year, and feel very safe personally that if I wanted to go back to New York, I could still have my place that I owned and um, they knew that I was really close to my family. So how could I travel back and forth more seamlessly? And um, so I, I, after a lot of deliberation and probably about six months, I moved to San Francisco and I moved in 1998. Here it is 2020 and I have <laughs> back. I love, I love the Bay area and I loved working for Banana Republic. And I did that for about three and a half years. And then I moved to Gap Adult okay. for three and a half years. That's where I met Chris. He was like 12 at the time, by the way. <laughs> a super smart whippersnapper. I liked stuck how- in, Stuck in jeans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I loved, I loved being there. And I, I loved, and I love, and then I, I left there, but things were changing, obviously, at the Gap from a leadership perspective. And- um, you know, just things were changing. And that's when I left. And I, I did a little stint at home. 
I did a cent at cost plus world market because they're based in Oakland and of their merchandising except for food and wine and then restoration hardware. And home was a little, I want to say home for me was not like where my, I guess my passion was. And so somehow through, through an outstanding headhunter who I thank this day, I got hooked up with Sephora. That's Cynthia Ahern for those of you who may not know her. Um, And I've been at Sephora now for nine years. And so my, my history has been so great because I've been in vertical, I've been luxury third party, I've been in home, uh, third party and more of a, a, a branded, you know, specialty. Right. I've been in, um, you know, kind of America, Macy's in the gap. And so right. no beauty experience. And they really took a bet on me. And, um, and I love that. I'm curious how your, your, experience was I mean I think that sounds somewhat familiar for people where you go into merchandising you know you're starting young right out of school you know learning the basics at at, in the Macy's training program but what is it like to switch between categories I mean can you can you dive into that a little bit because I think that's something that a lot of people listening to this program are probably like look I'm in beauty and I know beauty really well and the yeah. next possible job for them is in home or in luxury. Right. What's that? What was that transition like for you? Right. I think the best merchants have the client in mind. Okay. So, and I do believe the basic tenets of merchandising, like the, the idea that you're balancing art and science. You know, if you lean too much into the data and the analytics and you lose any type of gut, um, you're, I don't think you're going to be a great merchant because the client typically, especially in businesses that are more fashion businesses, can't tell you what they want for the future. Mm-hmm. You have to know your client well enough to know, well, how, how should I push this? Should, are they at the top of the curve of fashion? Are they at the middle? You know, are they a little bit of a delayed fashion or beauty junkie? So <clears throat> I think the questions one asks themselves is once you learn a business. So in home, for instance, in textiles, if you're in bath, you know that white is going to be a huge piece of your business, right? Mm-hmm. Or in home and dishware, but white is going to be a big piece of your business. If you know in makeup that a red lipstick is like your staple, and then you build the other things around it and you, you assess your business analytically um, to know how important certain staples are. And then you go out because you're hopefully you've got some good client insights. You're in the stores, you're listening to your stores, you're listening to your clients. There's lots of different ways to do that today. Right. Media makes it very easy and ratings and reviews make it very easy now versus what it was like in the eighties or the nineties sure. um, to be able to assess and build the right architecture for your client from that, whatever product you're working on. Sure. So I think you have the, you know, people talk about merchants as like, oh, there's this thing, it's inexplainable. And there is, there's a, there's a gut instinct that might not, you might not have any history that says yellow is a good seller, right. but in 21, yellow is going to be hot yeah. and you take a chance right. because data doesn't tell you that yellow is a great selling color, but if that's what's going to be hot for your client, you've got to figure out a way to introduce yellow and then buy it properly. Right. The other component. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I, 
I found what's most interesting in my career upon reflection is learning the business piece is not the hard piece. I think more and more cultural fit is also a really important thing to dig when you're interviewing or moving because the reality is is the transfer of the actual skill set I don't think is that hard. But working with people who are like-minded or who can put whatever you're looking for from a culture perspective, some people like steady cultures, some people like chaos, some people um, like different styles of leadership. I knew very much the kind of culture through my long history of what I was looking for as far as leadership, culture, how people treated their people. Was it an open environment? Was it entrepreneurial? Those things were really important to me. And I felt that when I met everybody at Sephora, I was like, wow, this seems like a place that I could fit in. And I'm energized by these super smart people. I want to always continue to learn. Right. And I think that's something that people might not put a lot of value in. But at the end of the day, people don't leave companies because they don't like makeup and they prefer to do thing. <laughs> people typically leave companies because they don't like their boss or they don't like the culture or they don't like something about the, 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 the smell of the company. That brings up a really great point, Allison. I think that, you know, especially in merchandising, I'd imagine, you know, you, you need that freedom and that support to follow your instincts when you're making some of these calls that, you know, don't have a ton of data to support them or have limited data to support them. And you got to have somebody that I would imagine is supporting you in, in making those decisions. That's right. And also how decisions are made. Some companies are really stacked and very hierarchical And that works for them for whatever reason. Some companies are flatter and whether they're flat or have a big hierarchy, it's also depends like, do you own that decision or do you not own that decision? Because ultimately, if you're in a company where it just has to continue to go up to the top and in this day and age, speed is really important no matter what business you're in. Right. Because everything happens so fast. Let's talk a little bit about that. What are you doing at Sephora now? What's your, you know, kind of your core function and and the teams that you're leading uh, within the Sephora organization? So what my teams do, and at this point, hopefully all I'm trying to do is um, make sure I'm setting the objectives and the strategies of the, of the uh, businesses, the categories, and then I'm just trying to get the noise out of the way so they can do their jobs the best way that they can. Um, So my teams are responsible for vetting any brand that comes to us that we sell, whether it's online, whether it's .com only or in-store, how big we think the opportunity is. Some brands we launch on .com only, some brands we launch in all stores, some brands we test in 25 stores. So the teams are really there to drive revenue for the company and how they do that is what's the right product where should it go how much should we buy um and what's the best way to get it in the client's hands so um there are a lot of brands out there always new brands right you really have to have their eyes and they do out on what's happening out there again before we might get little client nuggets But for instance, you know, clean makeup and clean fragrance, clean in general is obviously a really um, hot category right now. And there's a lot of clean brands coming at us. And you want to make sure that you've got the right assortment, talking to different types of clients, different price points, different attitudes, different 
uh, points of difference with their products. So that's really what the merchants do. They are looking at our brand portfolio and blowing out things that are hot. You know, sometimes things aren't, don't work how we want them to, and then how do we diminish them? Those are the not fun conversations that we sometimes have. And then how do you make something that's hot and make it bigger? How do you take all of the data that we have from a selling perspective and come to a conclusion to say, okay, this is where we can make it bigger. And how much of what's happening in the, the broader retail industry affects some of those decisions? I mean, you're talking for sure about you know, what you're selling online, piloting in 25 stores, certain products. How, how is your team kind of staying on top of or on the pulse of what's happening in the broader industry? Right. And what are some of the changes that you've kind of seen take shape that you've led um, in that time? Yeah. Well, you know, we're sitting here in, the, in August 2020 dealing with COVID. Right. So if there Big are changes for makeup. Yeah. So um, in the last, you know, what is it? Six months now? I don't even know. Every day's time's you know, gone. It's <laughs> day. Um, you know, the teams have really, and the organization has really had to pivot. We had to change everything. So for instance, you know, we bring new product into stores every week. Our right. stores closed for eight to 10 weeks. And then when we opened them, we knew that the client wasn't going to come back in droves. I mean, that would be silly to think the doors open and people come flying in. And so we had to change the pattern in which we were introducing newness and newness drives a lot of makeup business, right. um, a lot of excitement. It's an innovative category. Um, we, we thought about, okay, we have to think about now what's the new store experience as far as clients wanting to touch a tester. I mean, makeup, the reason why, you know, clients love, I'm lucky enough to be in a business where a store environment is still very meaningful Absolutely. Um, and touching and feeling makeup is fun. And it's also necessary to be able to choose the right product. So figuring out what that new experience looks like is that's a, that's a big wow. I don't know if you guys, if you remember like 20 years ago, there was something going on where people were starting to like open up the Tylenol or the Advil bottles and put poison in them. Oh, right? sure. Yeah, I remember. So the end, that whole industry had to pivot. And now you don't buy anything that doesn't have that seal on the top, right? To ensure yeah. that it's not tampered with. Well, I think about that. You know, this is that version. Mm -hmm. you know, make a customer, a client feel safe. I don't have the answers, but I know we should be brainstorming about it and talking to our brands about it and thinking about what the best client experience is because the stores are still a really important place to discover and to have fun. Uh, you know, the beauty business is fun to smell fragrance, to touch skincare, to try on a lipstick. How do we, how do we figure that out? So gosh, the last six months have been a mind blower. Yeah. You know? How do you think the last six months has maybe challenged you or how have you personally changed, I guess, your mm. approach to retail based mm. on what's happened here. I'm not sure this is a change. It just might've just become faster is the idea that things, if you're in retail for as long as I've been, you know, it's in constant motion. This accelerated a lot of things for retail that were already happening. But I, I think everything I'm asking myself now and the teens, what are the questions we need to ask ourselves to improve a client experience is something we always do at Sephora, but much quicker. The good news is, is I think about Sephora's 
hopefully we offer an environment that people really like to come into. You know, we always have uh, improvement as far as our store environment and everything we do, we're kind of never truly satisfied, but right. um, we like, like to come into Sephora. We get told that. So we got to make sure they continue to like it. And that's what we're trying to figure out. Allison, as you're thinking about the improvements that you're making to the overall Sephora experience, you mentioned before we started this recording, just the work that the beauty industry at large really needs to do to make beauty more inclusive. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean there? I think that we, as an industry, have a responsibility when it comes to racial equality to um, treat everybody with respect, no matter what they look like, what they, or how old they are, or what color their skin is, or what they're wearing. I think in retail, we have spent a long time judging people and treating them differently from a customer service level based on assumptions that we have. And I think when it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to ageism, when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, a sexual orientation. We are here to be well. If someone's walking in your store, we're lucky, and we need to treat everybody the same. And I think that's not typical in the retail experience. And I, we're trying to really work on that at Sephora. We're not. We're certainly not great at it. We know that. Um, but I think it's a responsibility that we have to our customers who walk in the stores. Well, and not just Sephora customers. I think that's something that the industry really needs to pause and focus on in general as we all start to think about preparing to reopen our stores. I'm curious, as as you're kind of going through this time with your team, um, are there other companies or, I guess, sources of information, whether it's, you know, podcasts or publications or things like, where are you looking for, I guess, advice or guidance from these days? Where do you, where do you direct your team to stay curious on, on what's happening in the industry? I mean, I, I obviously, you know, I still read WWD daily and business yep. And, you know, there's certain things I, I, you know, and obviously my friends and family send me anything about beauty, but <laughs> the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Um, but it really is, um, it's dynamic. Um, you know, I obviously, you know, Glossy and of course, Refinery29 and, and TZR. And, uh, but I, I find that I, I sometimes stumble on really interesting things just by poking around the internet. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's not always beauty related. Like I love what other somebody, some industries are doing and doing so well. Like I think about Warby Parker and you know what they were able to establish. And you know, I think a lot about our categories like foundation is a, is a category that's really intimidating to a lot of women. And right. the hardest thing to do is shade match. That's the one thing clients tell us. It's the most intimidating about buying their foundation is they don't want that demarcation under their neck. They want it to look like skin. They don't want to look a different color than they are. <laughs> so in a world where, you know, we have to figure out a way to make that easier for people to do. Right. Um, and we have some ways on our.com to do it, but there's always improvement. And so I like to know like Warby Parker made a sample model out of a typical eyeglass visit. You know, they, right. 
samples to clients and the clients can pick what they like. Now it's hard because everybody's skin tone is really very different, Sure, Um, but we're always constantly looking at what other brands and retailers do well. You know, I think what Glam Squad has done is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea of doing even virtual beauty tutorials, and you know. Right. I don't know. I just get lost in a lot of different things, I guess. Well, I think that's really good advice going, you know, outside of your industry to find the disruptors and find things that could, you know, potentially work in some capacity for what it is you're doing with your own brand. Um, I wonder if you, if you think about some of the advice that you've given to your team or advice that you'd give to somebody maybe earlier on in their, in their retail career, thinking about giving advice to the Allison back in the training program at Macy's New Jersey, what would you say to them? The most I learned from certain mentors in my life is more around my style than my smart. Explain. uh, um, You know, I've had a lot of mentors thankfully, in my career that I was able to observe and learn from. And to this day, there's some people I work around when I, whether they work for me or my peers or above me, like the way they deliver news or deliver a a message, I should say, I still learn from, you know, the delicacy of a certain message. I'm very direct, which I think is a, um, is a really nice skill to have, but sometimes I'm too direct and you have to know your audience to figure sure. out the best way to, you know, message that message. I've, I've learned that over time. Um, but most of the gifts that were given to me when it came to critical feedback or things to think about was more around um, the delivery of my ideas versus my ideas themselves. I do think for sure in the spirit of wanting to be the best and wanting to be smart and wanting to be the first and having a point of view, I think I probably didn't listen as much as I should have. So, you know, opening those ears is super, super important. I look back on my young self and I wished I'd listened more than, you know, tried to get the answer, Sure. try to know the answer. I'm proud to say like, I'm able to be more vulnerable now, you know, because when you do great, you know, when you're your young self and you are motivated and ambitious, which by the way, I still am. And you want to, you just want to impress and you want to do like the best of the best. And, you know, you can still do that and learn and listen and, and be mindful of that. Be mindful of the drive. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but be mindful of all the stuff around you mm-hmm. uh, that you can absorb. And you know what, just no one likes to know it all either. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You have to know some things, but, but the know-it-all, you don't want to go yeah. over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Allison, there's no doubt after hearing your career story today that you have done great things. Um, so I hope that you're, you're proud of that and you take some time to really be proud and, and happy about this career that you've built. Um, and I thank you for sharing that with our listeners today. If you could go back and reflect on your career. And if you could write a thank you note to one person who has impacted your career, um, where you are today, who would that be? And what would you say to them? I can't do one. And I'm sorry. That's like (laughs) my favorite beauty product. I know, which which I also want to know too. Um, you can can give me a couple. couple. Sure. Sure. Two thank you notes. 
maybe three. Uh, Tracy Gardner, who I worked for at The Gap, um, really taught me a lot about the things I just shared with you about skillful delivery of information. And she was a very, she is a really smart leader and super smart, but she shows her humanity and that's what stuck with me. Hmm. Um, and even to this day, when I give feedback, good or bad, I think about her style and I, I try to yeah. emulate that. And the second one's my current boss, Artemis Patrick, who is similar in a lot of ways to Tracy because she's a strong, smart, um, really effective leader, knows how to drive a business, but without ego, with humanity, um, there's really no one who doesn't like Artemis, which I think is such a gift when she's mm-hmm. been us for so long. Like, and not only just like her, but really respect her and think that she's. Right. I, I learn from that also every day. Like when she tells me she had a conversation with someone and she took it somewhere, I'm like, "Wow, Artemis! I would have, I would have taken it over there." And I, I, <laughs> I think learning, you know, you can't stop. And then I can't not talk about Mickey, you know, and like watching, you know watching him work and the passion in which he believed and mm-hmm. being around that. Um, Jean Jackson, who was so smart, so smart at Banana Republic. It was when we were launching cashmere and it was, Oh God, it was like a million years ago. People don't even know. Um, I don't know. You know, it's, I've many, my first boss at Macy's when I went as an assistant buyer, King. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> It's well, hard. So I know I'm not picking one. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm a very focused person. But I, I think I think the constant thread through all of this is, you know, really incredible leaders that you've had throughout your career. And um, I, I want to thank you again for being part of this podcast and leading all of those people who will listen to this um, from afar, even if they're not reporting to you directly, uh, being able to have somebody like you whose career they can look up to and follow and really learn from. Thank you so much, Allison, for your time today. If you could throw your own concert in Calistoga right now and you can pick three bands, dead or alive, who would you choose? The Allman Brothers. Oh, all right. The Steve Miller Band, old Steve Miller Band. Yep. And then probably like, oh, the Stones. Okay. You can tell I'm a little more on the classic rock. You know what? I think I can already picture the setting. It's like some beautiful outdoor stage. We're doing Mm -hmm. an amphitheater. Sounds amazing. Mm -hmm.